I think we'll give our two panelists a chance to respond first of all, and then we'll open it up. Uh, we have about a half an hour, actually, until the break. So uh, we, ha we should have um, some uh, good time for conversation. Uh, and I'll start, uh, I'll introduce our two panelists. Uh, Janice Pilch is uh, university, at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and she chairs uh, the Office for Information Technology Policy Copyright Subcommittee. Um, welcome. And Eve Woodbury is university librarian at the University of New England in New South Wales, Australia. And she's also president of the Council of, Australian, of the Australian University Librarians. So welcome, Eve, from down under. So uh, why don't we start with you, Eve? Do you have uh, a response, some response, some comments uh, from your perspective? Definitely have some comments, and I think it's quite appropriate that Australia should be following on from those two brilliant speeches from the US. Um, if I remember rightly, the DMCA was the first of the acts that tried to uh, address the digital environment, and Australia came in second with their Copyright uh, Digital Amendment Act. And um, they're very different acts. And if it's if nothing else, coming all, halfway around the world to hear Fred say that the US has also had problems with the free trade agreement, has been just wonderful because we thought we were the only ones who were having problems with the free trade agreement. And also to listen to Peter talking about the fact that uh, US law is not superior, which was also extremely interesting. Um, because that then does raise a question that says, if this is the case, then why is your government trying to impose your copyright law on other countries as part of the free trade agreements. Now, if it's not that much better, then why do it? The other one is that, and this I found very interesting last night when Fred was saying that there are now problems in the US with changes to the DMCA, and yet as part of the free trade agreement, Australia now has to follow what happens with the DMCA, not in all aspects, but in some aspects. And if you're going to have problems changing the law here, then what does that mean for Australia who's tied into an FTA? Um, and the, the FTA itself, there were about 20 chapters in the FTA, one of which, Chapter 17, was on intellectual property. And that one chapter created more paperwork than all of the other chapters put together. So, um, Peter, yes, no, while Australia had to re-sign on it, it's very hard arguing against peanuts and wool and wheat, um, we're still fighting out there. And it really was just the government that gave up because uh, there were a lot of people in there right at the beginning saying, you know, we don't want to trade away our intellectual property, but it's a hard act. So moving on from that, and I think those are a couple of questions, and they are serious questions because I really would like to hear some of the answers to that. There has been some impact on where we go from here and picking up on some of the, the, the issues that Peter talked about, particularly the one that is fair use. And one of the questions too is that if we pick up on the issue of fair use and the language of fair use, is it just the language of fair use or are we actually going to do something about it? Does it get applied? Very recently, yesterday, Australia released a paper on the review of fair dealing in Australia, which we will have to respond to. And this has come out of both a simplification report which was produced by the Copyright Law Review Committee in Australia in the late 1990s 
and, has, and it's, it recommended that, a simplification report, which recommended that uh, Australia review its fair dealing provisions. Now, as part of the free trade agreement, and we're talking about correcting course, in the free trade agreement, what it did was, un what, from our point of view, unbalance the Act so that it really did tip it very much more in favour of copyright owners. And we would now like to put back on the agenda the issue of the users. And once again, that is then looking at the issue of the differences between the US fair use and the Australian fair dealing provisions. So we now, in the next couple of months, I think we've got about two, I haven't even seen the report yet, I've just got the URL. Two, in the next two months, we have to respond to what we want to do with our Act. And so the information that's coming away from here is very interesting. Um, our fair dealing provisions are very limited. As Peter said, it has, they have very, the ex, their exceptions, they are extremely limited. If you look at the fair use provisions on the other end of the Act and put those into context, they don't fit into the Australian Act because the context is so totally different. So what do we do here? How do we, how do we shift it from one end to the other, particularly when we don't want to look at losing the other benefits in our Act, which are some of the exceptions to do with the library exceptions, which are to do with our educational provisions that are in that Act. Uh, our distance edu education provisions are totally different to the US ones. So how does this all fit together? And we now have a very neat little summary in Peter's paper to take away with us. Uh, and, and those are some of the issues that I don't think you can look at fair use or fair dealing in isolation. It really is a matter of looking at the exceptions, the provisions within the Act that say, how do these all fit together so that you come together, you, get, you come up with something that fits your context and your legislative background? And do we take into account some of the issues as well of the, um, the, the technological protection measures and the DRM? Now, the technological protection measures, we don't have to deal with under our free trade, trade agreement for another couple of years. We've got two years to bring that in. The discussions are starting, but we're going to have to deal with that as well. We do have the benefit of being able to look at them in, in conjunction with the other reviews that are going on. There's also a couple of other things that I would like to put on the, on the table that Peter did touch on, and one is the moral rights legislation. In Australia, the moral rights was considered to be so important that when they were reviewing the Copyright Act, they actually pulled moral rights out of the Act because they wanted to get those dealt with and produced a Moral Rights Act, which came in in December 2000. And that, is, and that was specifically before, because it was seen as being so important uh, to the actual overall agenda. So, listening to what you were saying about moral rights, it was, it was very interesting to sort of see the dichotomy that was happening here. The moral rights legislation is, is, is very broad. It is the right of attribution, the right against false attribution, and the right of integrity is very much what is covered in there. Um, so the relationship between that and copyright, interesting to see that ours has been pulled out. How does this actually fit in into, another, into other legislation? Crown copyright. We've also just had a review of our Crown copyright. A report came out about a month, six weeks ago. 
with recommendations. Once again, and to us this is something that's, that was very important because it is very come out very much in favour of the users. One of the recommendations is that Crown copyright in Australia is abolished in its current form. Because it, uh, and that, that what it does do is that the Crown shouldn't be advantaged under the copyright law. That the information, particularly the information that's in the public interest, uh, which is things like the, the statutes and cases should be much more readily available uh, to the public and that it shouldn't be under the Crown Copyright regime. You didn't touch on that one at all. That was, no. that's, a, <laughs> that's a very interesting one to throw into the mix as well. Um, the punitive side of it, yes, it's definitely starting to move around much more. It, and and the free trade agreements, it's, it's, a, it's interesting. I mean, we could spend an entire day talking about the free trade agreement, or probably between Australia and, and the US. I'm not sure the rest of you would be all that interested. Um, but it, it, that issue of putting copyright and intellectual property into a free trade agreement and all the ramifications of that are something that is extremely difficult for libraries particularly to counteract. We don't have enough clout to be able to change what's going in, or we didn't in Australia. It was also something that was put in there that it wasn't until the actual document came out that people were aware that IP was going to be included. And this is a critical issue. Um, Canada has done much better in their uh, trade agreement with America. Singapore is also I think you will find they don't have IP in the Singapore-US uh, agreement. So these are, you know, I go back to where I started from. If the US is going into these free trade agreements, then why, and, and, their, and the old legislation, and the US legislation isn't that wonderful, then why is it that it does keep getting put in there in its current form? And what can we do to counteract that? Peter's recommended that we look at, uh, at having some best practice. I would suggest that one of the other things that we put in with the best practice is best practice at counteracting this these, these free trade, the, the IP in the free trade agreements. What are the things that you could put in there so that it doesn't get left out altogether? Because I'm sure governments won't agree with that. But what is it that you actually can do to make that better so that you don't actually as Australia has done, is effectively give away their intellectual property for peanuts. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Eve. Janice. Okay. In this paper, Professor Yazi fine-tunes the reasoning for taking a broad view of public interest, interest exceptions to embrace the range of possibilities in national copyright laws worldwide. His suggestion for a hybrid approach is intriguing, and it offers a constructive way to rebalance public and private interests in this age of increasingly aggressive privatization of information resources and profit-based strategies for control of information. I'd like to comment by offering a few thoughts on specific points raised in this paper. Um, I should first clearly state that I am not a lawyer. I'm a librarian with a strong interest in a research agenda in copyright for Slavic and East European countries. And I share with all of you an intense interest in, in ensuring that the free exchange of information resources remains a feature of our civilization. My comments are based on knowledge of the part of the world that I study 
and are meant to support several of Professor Yazzie's main points, which could not be articulated any more beautifully or expertly, certainly not by me. Uh, the first point and the main theme of this paper, that the U.S. is perhaps not superior in its formulation of public interest exceptions in the international context. It's very nice that this idea has been stated in this way, I think. Uh, the wide array of limitations and exceptions existing in national laws is something to marvel at, considering that of the 17 limitations and exceptions identified as originating in the Berne Convention in the 2003 WIPO study on limitations and exceptions, only two are actually mandatory. The remaining limitations and exceptions are optional for nations to introduce as they wish, and they have been widely adopted internationally, even in East European countries, and even before eight East European countries joined the EU last year. Still other limitations and exceptions do not originate in Bern at all, but they appear as common practice across the laws of many nations. Burn member nations being free to develop exceptions as they see fit, as long as they fulfill the conditions of Article 9.2, the so-called three-step three test. It's also very important to realize, as Professor Yassi points out, that even the so-called specific or categorical exceptions can function in a very open way. To add to the examples that Professor Yassi discusses, Estonia's law contains quite an open provision for libraries and archives. Article 22, Section 3 states, Libraries, archives, and museums have the right to reproduce works or part thereof which belong to their funds or collections upon request from natural persons for private use. This provision references the private use provision, stating that a lawfully published work may be reproduced for private use without the authorization of its author and without payment. Some types of works are excluded, as is the norm with provisions of this type and commercial use is not allowed, uh, and in the language of the three-step test, uh, the use must not conflict with the normal exploitation of the work or prejudice the legitimate interests of the author. But it is quite an open provision. As another example, Poland's provision for lawful use of protected works by libraries, archives, and schools includes permission to make single copies of published works or cause them to be made in order to complete, protect, and preserve their collections an activity that is more restricted by conditions in the U.S. Poland also allows, in Article 33, Section 3, for reproduction of published three-dimensional works and photographs when the purpose is for inclusion in encyclopedias and atlases and, quote, when approaches made to the author to secure his consent encounter obstacles that are difficult to overcome. <laughs> Sounds like orphan works to me, right? In this case, the author is entitled to remuneration. Uh, it does sound like an orphan works type of provision to deal with photographs and illustrations whose copyright holders cannot be identified or located, an extremely common situation these days worldwide. As a general statement, the nations in the form of the former Soviet Union comprising the Commonwealth of Independent States have adopted generous limitations and exceptions to the rights of copyright holders. All of these nations have adopted nearly all of the optional free use provisions of Berne, in addition to the mandatory ones. And some did this even before joining Berne, Uzbekistan being the most notable example because it joined Berne only this year. Some 24 free use exceptions are found across the laws of those 12 nations, which were formulated to some extent with reference to each other. The point here is to emphasize that nations have indeed 
found very different and creative ways of serving the public interest needs of culture and education. A second point in this paper that deserves emphasis is that while fair use in particular is often viewed as a cornerstone of free use of information, it is only one of many approaches. And in the broader picture, U.S. exceptions are relatively few and they are relatively narrow and complex, often convoluted and technical, sometimes leading to problems in real-life application, such as with the revised Section 110, the TEACH Act. It has been said that fair use bears an indistinct relationship to the other exceptions in U.S. law, in part because it is so unlike them. U.S. limitations and exceptions, including fair use, in turn bear an indistinct relationship to those of most other nations because they are so unlike them. And they also bear an unclear relationship to the limitations and exceptions in the Berne Convention, no doubt in part because most were formulated before the U.S. bore a relationship to Berne and also because Bern is an instrument based on the continental perspective. The lack of connection between U.S. copyright law and other nations' laws in the area of public interest exceptions is something that emerges from this paper and is something to keep in mind during our discussions at this conference. This becomes noticeable in comparing with fair use something like the very common personal or private use exception in civil law countries that Professor Yassi discusses at the beginning of his paper. It has amazed me that the U.S. lacks a personal use exception. Section 107 doesn't list personal use among the purposes favored by the fair use analysis. We understand that it can be factored in thanks to the efforts of legal specialists, some of whom are in this room today. Personal use is drawn out in interpretations of fair use, in development of fair use guidelines and checklists, but in a nation that places such a high value on the individual, personal use of intellectual property, if anything, has a negative value in the fair use assessment. It is frequently equated with entertainment use and set against transformative or, or productive use. So that it's good to study a book or write a book, but it's bad just to want to enjoy a book. <laughs> Uh, by contrast, all, all the uh, CIS nations have a private use exception, and most European nations do as well. Usually this means that one copy may be made, but some nations allow for more, such as Slovenia, which allows for three copies to be made. And so despite the fact that, as Professor Yazzi indicates, fair use has been seen as a flagship exception, or as he puts it, you know, regarded as an international gold standard in copyright, there really is no international standard for public interest exceptions. As he suggests, it would be helpful for us to become more familiar with the typology of public interest exceptions on a broader scale. Attempts to categorize limitations and exceptions have led in the past to different schemes. Perhaps there is work to be done in this area. The third point in Professor Yazzi's paper that is worth reinforcing is that the lack of attention until recently in the U.S. to public interest limitations and exceptions, coupled with recently well-developed anti-circumvention restrictions, have tipped the balance unfavorably, but that change is possible. There does appear to be some movement on this abroad, and happily, happily, it involves a library. Uh, by way of another example, in January of this year, the German National Library announced that it had negotiated a license with right holders to circumvent legally copyright protection mechanisms in CD-ROMs, videos, software, and e-books. 
by adopting a voluntary agreement as allowed by the 2001 EU directive to ensure that right holders make available to the beneficiary of an exception or limitation the means of benefiting from that exception or limitation. The German Federation of the uh, Phonographic Industry and the German Booksellers and Publishers Association have apparently agreed to permit the library to circumvent technology for archiving purposes and to break digital locks on books and music for scientific purposes, for collections for educational purposes, for instruction and research, as well as on books that are out of print. True, these reproductions are subject to a fee and possibly a digital watermark, but there is a but there is development, this is a development worth noting. Uh, and so I will stop here by saying that I wholeheartedly agree with Professor Yassi that nations of the world have much to learn from each other. It seems to me that we will do well to consider the underlying philosophy that has shaped copyright law in various nations. Changes to copyright law in this country have often been driven by technological change. Other nations seem more comfortable formulating public interest exceptions that respond to immediate and tangible cultural needs within the longstanding humanist traditions and enlightenment principles that still define those nations' sensibilities. Perhaps it is time to realize that if copyright continues to trip on the heels of science and technology, it will fall. And perhaps we can right the balance by regrounding ourselves within a framework that embraces humanistic ideals from which our international counterparts have not stepped so far. Thank you. Thank you, Janice. <laughs> Thanks to both of our reactors, uh, uh, panelists, for those comments. Peter, do you, I'll give you a minute if you like to. Um, I think I'd rather, rather go to. Just open it up. Okay. We'll do that. We're happy to do that. Um, Fred. Uh, Fred von Lohmann from EFF uh, again. Um, I had a question to raise, I guess, for all of, uh, of the panel, but in particular in Peter's paper, which I also enjoyed a great deal. Uh, I noted in his discussion of the relative strengths and weaknesses of an open, ambiguous fair use standard as contrasted to a more specific set of exceptions, uh, the absence of a discussion of the interaction between exceptions and limitations and technological innovation. So the way I would put this most concretely, and I think this has been a traditional criticism voiced of the exceptions and limitations approach uh, of, of other countries that try to create a more specific laundry list, what about uses that no one has ever thought of yet? For example, I've been told, and perhaps uh, uh, we, we can get the, the, the first person account, but I've been told in Australia, for example, the iPod under existing Australian law is simply unlawful. Uh, under technical copyright, there is no exception that would permit users to make wholesale personal copies of sound recordings for their personal use uh, on these devices. So if we had uh, uh, that set of exceptions to limitations in the United States, Apple Computer would have been unable, their general counsel, I'm sure, would have advised them not to develop and market that product. Certainly not, as Peter astutely points out, with the American remedial regime standing in the background that would bankrupt the company uh, should they try to do that. So I agree with Peter's ultimate prescription that we need some sort of hybrid. Uh, obviously, many of the exceptions, limitations that are specific are valuable. 
But I want to add to his list of reasons behind the American uh, to, to favor the incorporation of an open-ended, ambiguous test of the kind you find in American fair use law, the, the factor that it encourages innovation in new kinds of uses. Uh, American companies in developing technologies, although I agree fair use is difficult and indeterminate and the rest, at least they can say to themselves, if we invent this technology and people use it in new and unexpected ways, we're not automatically going to be violating copyright law, nor will our customers automatically be violating copyright law by using our product in new and interesting ways. So just one more uh, weight in the scale on the side of uh, uh, retaining some kind of open-ended fair use uh, conception. And so I, any response comments would be appreciated. Just wanted to add that idea. Um, I'll just respond back, Fred, on the Australian situation. Yes, Australia, use, the use of an iPod is illegal. There's no personal use uh, exceptions in the Australian copyright law. So um, do it video, videos for time shifting, um, use of iPods, not covered anywhere. Mind you, it doesn't stop anybody doing it <laughs> because we have a different type of, of system behind it. But no, at the moment they are uh, illegal. I'd, I'd be interested, just picking up on what you were saying, about we've had already some quite a lot of discussions about where we go with changing our fair dealing laws or expanding our fair dealing laws and have come up right up against that issue that you've just raised. If you go with what we have at the moment, which is a list of exceptions, how do you make that laundry list one that will actually include those developments that we don't know about at the moment? The other side of that is, of course, that's one of the great benefits of fair use, if you don't go from, if you don't actually take the fair use exceptions simply because our legislation is, is different, we don't have the case law behind it, how do you actually get that particular part of it and include it into the fair dealing side of things? They have, that's right, yes, and I think we'll be going down that way. So, yeah. I, You're right. Uh, the, I don't want to be understood at all as suggesting that fair use is passe or that it is inferior to a, an approach that emphasizes itemized schedules of specific exemptions. The, each approach has significant independent value and as one, the specific exemption pro approach is underdeveloped in the United States. So I think the other, the use of flexible, dynamic, technologically open standards for a, a kind of residual exception is underdeveloped in many other parts of the world. So again, I will, I will sort of stick with my proposition that hybridity may be the way of the future. Uh, I wanted to uh, affirm the interest of the library community in the type of uh, direction that Peter and others have advised. Uh, I'm going to put Winston on the, on the spot here. Uh, Winston Tab of uh, Johns Hopkins is the chair of the IFLA uh, Committee on Library uh, on Copyright and Other Legal Matters. And in fact, uh, as, as recently as yesterday, uh, members of the committee uh, did, in, did in fact discuss this very issue. And I thought it would be useful for Winston to comment a little bit. I, I, I fail to find any other, it's very difficult for me to find any other forum in which this type of 
sort of international inventory and assessment can take place. And so I, I'd be interested in Winston's comment on that. Uh, thanks, Jim. Uh, as Jim mentioned, we are taking advantage of this conference. Uh, we did yesterday to have a meeting of the Committee on Copyright and Other Legal Matters of the International Federation of Library Associations. And it's always wonderful when someone ends a paper exhorting people to do something that you've already decided to do. So one of the <laughs> decisions that we took yesterday, our meeting, was to have a special program at the upcoming conference at Oslo in August, which is to focus exactly on this, both problems as well as solutions that have been found with the limitations and exceptions uh, and libraries uh, from all around the world. We probably have about uh, representatives from over 100 countries uh, likely to be at this conference. So we intend to come out of the meeting uh, with exactly the kind of document that I think you were describing, Peter. Yes, uh, yes my name is Paul Whitney from uh, Vancouver Public Library. And as one of several Canadians present here today, I think it's necessary perhaps just to do a bit of a reality check on some of the things that are <laughs> happening north of the border. I think if the Canadian government is to be uh, congratulated for anything that's public policy, it's uh, procrastination. That's <laughs> about it. I mean, the best thing that they've done is nothing. And it's, it's a telling fact that when we gather as educators, librarians, archivists, and, and uh, museum representatives, and talk about what is the best outcome for us in the near term in terms of Canadian legislation, the best outcome from our perspective is nothing happening. And um, we may say indeed that yes, the Supreme Court ruling was a wonderful ruling, a very powerful statement, which unfortunately can be undone by the stroke of a legislative pen, and we're very conscious of that. We're very conscious of the fact while the March position paper brought forward by the two ministers is in many instances as fair and balanced as we could reasonably expect. When the politicians left to their own devices early in their year brought forward a position paper, it was egregious, it was awful, and essentially worked against the public interest and user rights in every instance. When we anticipate the legislative agenda moving forward, we know from past practice that huge pressure will brought, be brought to bear on Canadian parliamentarians. And I personally anticipate an outcome much the same as in, has happened in Australia, that creative directions will be squashed. This has happened with Canadian legislation as recently as three years ago with the Broadcasting Act, which ended up being a matter of heated debate in the House of Representatives of the United States. Strong WTO trade challenges uh, were, were made and uh, the Canadian legislation changed. Might is right when it comes down to dealing with this, these kinds of international negotiations. So I, in case everybody is now thinking this is another reason to emigrate, I'm just bringing this <laughs> forward as a, a note of caution. Just wait till we, the devil is in the details. Let's wait until we see the legislation and what actually makes its way through the political process in Canada because we are going to have to work very hard to hold our own ground. A couple of other comments. We've been told our private copying regime, um, which is what allows downloading the file sharing of music and so on, is likely to be subject to a WIPO challenge and probably will have to be amended as this moves forward. And finally, I, I enjoyed the, uh, the Italian example of marching bands exemption. Canada's uh, similar exception in our act is for country fairs and rodeos. So perhaps, <laughs> perhaps this says something about national character. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeehaw. Okay. Um, let's have, we're, we're getting close to our 10 15 uh, hour, but uh, I think Rick Weingarten, who's, uh, who's the director of the Office for Information Technology Policy, has a question. Rick, we'll maybe take one more, uh, two more, okay. and we'll um, wrap it up. 
Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll make this a very quick comment. I, I wanted to um, address a little, just a touch on the politics of fair trade because I, I think the um, both the comments last night and today may suggest that this is somehow a powerful locomotive that the content industry has been hooking onto. And um, I think there are enough vulnerabilities to suggest that we shouldn't necessarily give it up uh, opposition. Um, in the first place, it's anything but a slam dunk. Fair trade agreements are never a slam dunk in Congress. There's powerful opposition and always has been from uh, labor unions, from environmental groups. Um, it's not an easy, it's never an easy fight. And the opposition of another major interest group is the last thing those folks want. Um, secondly, in the trade area, the content industry, yes, is an exporter, but they are by no means the major force. Uh, agriculture is a huge voice. And I've been told by trade experts that if, if the content agreements start to present problems, that industry will be the first thing tossed out of the rowboat. Um, so there are, that's not to say it's an easy fight. On the other hand, it's not a given. It's not a slam dunk, and it's something that we ought to think about, uh, maybe being a little more vocal, a little more aggressive in our, uh, in our approach to. Oh, sorry. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind. Um, Gigi Sohn from Public Knowledge. Peter, I really enjoyed your, uh, your talk. But you raised something in the beginning that, that has been something that vexes a lot of not only librarians but also artists and the filmmakers that you know that you've worked with, and that's the problem of the absolute refusal to license. So there may be cases where a use is not like a filmmaker wants to use uh, a, a film clip that isn't necessarily a fair use, but that the licensee uh, licensor absolutely refuses to license. Is there anything to be done about that, or is that just you know the refusal to license is so much a part of copyright law that that's not something that should be reformed in any way? Well, I think refusal to license is a kind of behavior within the scheme of copyright law, and it's clearly always been a part, and to a certain extent I think always will remain a part of copyright law. It's hard to find any national regime that does not recognize that under some circumstances a rights holder is empowered to refuse rather than to grant permission. That's where I think the concept of limitations and exceptions enters in so powerfully. And the, the premise of your question that the, the assumed use is not fair use is one that I think needs to be perhaps reframed in the, in the, in the, in the desired condition to which this community I think might want to aspire there would be fair uses and there would also be various uses permitted under particular itemized specific limitations and exceptions. If particular classes of users have a sufficient amount of moral, cultural, and political authority to obtain for themselves the same benefits that marching bands and rodeos <laughs> have secured in other national legislation, they should certainly work toward that goal. The difficulty is that many of the groups that might be benefited by expanded 
exceptions don't have that kind of political power. So the question then becomes what to do in those instances. And here I'm going to, I'm going to revert a little bit to my original position and suggest that I think that perhaps the best thing that can be done for the communities that lack the political clout to get their own special carve-outs in legislation may be to defend, expand, and clarify the generic provisions, fair use, fair dealing, public interest exception, as the case may be. Yes, one last question, and then we'll, we'll call it a wrap. I'm Donna Sheeter, um, Law Library of Congress. In the way of a, a comment, I want to underscore, I think, the importance of Eve's raising of the issue of, um, in your system, Crown copyright, but government information, particularly legislation and court cases, um, not only remaining in the public domain, but protecting the right of um, the producers in the government to add some value to make that information accessible to citizens in a way that they can easily get at it. And I hope that we'll add um, making sure that, that, that there's no erosion to those kinds of efforts um, as part of our laundry list here of things that, that are our best practices. Thank you.